Let me pray again as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known and we thank you that you have made yourself known in a language that we can understand. We pray that you'll settle our hearts now uh, and help us to focus on what you are speaking to us this morning. And we pray that uh, you'll search our hearts, uh, that you'll test us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in us and uh, lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was living in uh, Asia when COVID hit, uh, and so that was a very um, challenging experience, to say the least, and almost overnight um, we were hit with all these amazing uh, um, restrictions. And um, um, we had the police coming knocking on our door and saying that we couldn't leave our apartment without permission, and we had all sorts of restrictions on where we could buy food and how many times a week we could buy food. Twice a week, one of us could go out a couple of hours, we had to register everywhere we went. Uh, those restrictions on buses and taxis, we, we couldn't uh, catch them without registering and things like that. So it was a very uh, challenging time. And I remember um, during that time, I, like I've never had panic attacks as an adult, um, but during that time was the first time as an adult that I actually had a panic attack. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and, um, and just the, experiencing this absolute fear that I was going to die for some reason. Now, obviously, I might have been reading too much in this COVID thing that was sweeping through the country where I was living, but it was a very real experience that my heart was being at 100 miles an hour. I, I couldn't calm down, and I had all these, all these images and, and things just sweeping through my mind. Now, I must admit, um, this, is, this experience is nothing compared to, to what some people experience and go through, particularly what's going on in Europe at the moment. I, I didn't have to flee my hometown and um, um, watch people um, um, be, uh, invade my own country or anything, but it was a very real experience for me at the time. And um, now, I know, but if there was one word to describe that feeling of just lying on the bed and just having this just absolute fear, it was the word uh, hopelessness. Uh, this sense of hopelessness. I was just overwhelmed with that sense. That, that, that it was a very real sense of hopelessness there. Now, each of us have probably had feelings like that in different ways and, and some more than others, but it, I guess the feeling of being hopeless is a, is a common human experience, and, and for some it's obviously more intense than others based on circumstances that are going on. Uh, but we have to admit that there are so many different feelings uh, in our experiences, in the complexities of life, in the confusions of life. So today we look at a, closely at the final moments of Judas and, and what he was wrestling with, as well as the people he was with at the time. So it, I found it a very difficult passage, to be honest, to, to prepare, and um, I hope that as we go through it, um, we can draw some things out together. So please bear with me as we go through, as we sort of wrestle through uh, what this passage is saying. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus on trial when he admits to the high priest that he has the, he has the authority of God himself. And the high priest, rather than admitting this is true, uh, he, he goes on to deny who Jesus is uh, and says Jesus is only worthy of one thing, uh, and that is worthy of death. Uh, he underestimates who Jesus really is. And then last week, the camera shifts from the center stage in the courtroom to, to outside in the darkness of the courtyard, uh, and there was Peter, who also uh, denies uh, Jesus. A few hours earlier, Jesus had said to him that he would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. And, and Peter, in all his boldness, declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So Jesus goes on to tell Peter to watch and pray that he doesn't fall away and disown Jesus. But here in the darkness of the courtyard, to save his own life, and just as Jesus had predicted, 
Peter denies Jesus three times as we explored last week. He, he had overestimated himself and underestimated the words of Jesus. And overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness of his own, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And that's where the passage ended last week. Uh, and that's the, all that we get in Matthew's Gospel of, of what happened to Peter in terms of his name being mentioned personally. So by the time we get to this passage this week, once again we see that these themes of admission and denial and a, a sense of hopelessness are coming through. So let's pick it up from verse 1 there in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, Matthew 27, 1. Early in the morning, probably for, uh, after first light, um, just after that piercing sound of the rooster crowing through that morning air that cut Peter to the heart at that point. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Pretty hopeless situation, really. Um, um, so whether it is a separate, for, more formal courtroom or court from the one in the middle of the night that the, the leaders had is not clear, but either way, it still abounds with the characteristics of the, the kangaroo court that we looked at a few weeks ago. And they make the decision that the only thing Jesus is worthy of is, is the death penalty. But being under Roman rule, they had to get it past the Roman authorities, of course. So in fulfilment of his own words, Jesus is handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans. As verse 2 says, they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Pontius Pilate takes a bit more of a prominent role next week, and we'll explore him a little bit more then. But Judas reappears here in verse 3. So it says in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now, having seen the outcome of what he had willingly set in motion, it brought home to him the reality of what he had done. An innocent man is condemned. That's a bit of a key theme running through these chapters of Matthew in particular, and one by one the disciples are falling around Jesus. And in the end, Jesus is left as the only innocent one left behind, uh, in contrast to all the disciples and the leaders around him. Now perhaps Judas is aware of the law in Deuteronomy 27 that says, Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. And so no longer living in denial, Judas is willing to admit that he is guilty. And he attempts to make some kind of recompense for what he's done. But in turning to the chief priests and the elders in the temple, the ones he thought he could turn to for hope in a hopeless situation, the only answer he gets is, what is that to us? They reply, that's your responsibility. And their indifference to Jesus now extends to their indifference to Judas. So loathing them as much as he loathes himself, Judas responds in verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Now, he probably wasn't allowed to be in a part of the temple where the chief priests were, so presumably, presumably there was some kind of barrier there that he, he throws the money through the gate or over a wall into the restricted area. And so not unlike the sound of the rooster crowing in his ear in the previous passage with Peter, but the clanging of the sound of the coins on the temple floor is equally resounding of the rightful judgment of them on the denial of Jesus. And then Matthew adds this one last short, sharp sentence, just like he did last week with Peter. One last sharp sentence. Then he went away and hanged himself. Blinded by the hopelessness of his guilt, 
and rejected by the ones who should be directing him to God, he feels there is no way back to God. Now, some have interpreted the language that Judas was seized with remorse as it's more like regret rather than repentance, and that's a little bit of a debate about that. And the, but the words used here in Matthew 21 are, uh, uh, the, sorry, the words used here are very similar to the words used in Matthew 21 uh, when it's, Jesus is telling a story about two sons who were told to work in the vineyard. Um, one said yes and didn't go, and the other son said no that changed his mind and did go. And Jesus was using that as an illustration of repentance in saying the Jews um, were saying yes, but in their actions were showing no. And the Gentiles, the tax collectors and the sinners were saying no, but in their actions they were saying yes and they were, they were repenting. So there's no sort of definitive answer to whether Jesus repented at this final moment. There's a lot of debate and I'm happy to talk to you about that at the end. But I think Matthew's drawing our attention not necessarily to what's going on um, uh, with, with um, Judas here, but the most important thing at the end of the day is a warning to us all that once we start down a path of denying who Jesus is, then it makes it very difficult to find any way back. And for Judas, it started with his greed, and then it just took him down a particular path, and then it was very, very difficult for him to find his way back. And let's, so let's watch and pray for one another and ourselves that we don't start to go down that path to start with. Then passage shifts from Judas, who was feeling guilty, to the leaders of the people who should have felt guilty but didn't. And such a big contrast here. Verse 6, it goes on, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, oh, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. Now, the irony is pretty thick on the ground once again here. That's what Matthew is very good at. He wasn't, it wasn't just Judas who was responsible for betraying innocent blood. But giving a bribe makes one as guilty as somebody who takes a bribe. So the chief priest who actually gave him these 30 pieces of silver in the first place, back in chapter 26, 15, are as guilty as Judas who took it. So whether they're turning a blind eye or just can't see, see past their own blind spots, Either way, the, it's hypocrisy on steroids going on here. So I just can't see past it. But instead of using this opportunity that Judas brought to them to recognise that they also have betrayed an innocent man, they had an opportunity to repent of their guilt at that point in time as well. But they continue to live in denial. And verse 7 continues. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. So not for the first time do they decide together, do they plot together. Now they find a way to stash this money uh, away. Now foreigners who came into Jerusalem and met with an untimely death were not allowed to be buried in the same place as the Jews inside the city. So they built an unclean uh, ceremony for unclean foreigners with unclean money on the edge of the city. Now, Colin Buchanan, as we all know, not exactly a prophet in the Old Testament. Not, there's no prophet Colin. But uh, his songs remind us uh, lots of very helpful Bible truths. And uh, one song he says, nothing takes God by surprise. You know that song? 
Here we, nothing takes God by surprise. I can't remember how it goes, but anyway. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Obviously, my singing is uh, very deficient. But, um, but by referring to these last of the ten fulfillment passages in Matthew, it reminds us once again that it's all part of God's plan. Nothing takes God by surprise at all. And that's why he quotes, he goes on to talk about in verse 9 and 10, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, there's a little bit of a mosaic of scriptural motives going on here. Uh, it's a little bit complex because even though Matthew attributes uh, this, this part of scripture to the more well-known of the major prophets, Jeremiah, the bulk of the illusion actually comes from the minor prophet, Zechariah. So that's a little bit tricky. But like Matthew does in other parts of his gospel, it is only the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and one reference to Daniel, that he actually refers to. And uh, rather than any reference, he, he alludes to the reference of the minor prophets, but don't, he doesn't actually mention them. Uh, I don't know why he leaves the minor prophets anonymous, even though he refers to them, but that's what he's doing here. Maybe he, he, had heard, he knew it was in there somewhere, but he forgot exactly which prophet it is, minor or major, so he just quoted the big major ones and uh, knew it was in there somewhere. But having a closer look at these Old Testament allusions, we can see some themes coming through. Now, I found it really hard to understand and sort of try to put these things together. Uh, and so I won't try to cover everything these Old Testament passages allude to, but I'll try to pick up some key links to, to draw some things out here. Now, firstly, let's turn across to Jeremiah chapter 19, actually. If you've got your Bibles there, we'll have a quick look there. It'll come up on the screen as well. Jeremiah chapter 19, um, chapter, uh, verse 1, uh, says this. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, near the entrance of the Potsherd Gate. There proclaim the words I tell you. And then he goes on, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and have made this place a a place of foreign gods. He goes on in verse 4, and they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Now the horrific nature of the blood of the innocent comes out in verse 5, as, as Vera read it for us earlier. They have built high places to Baal, to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal. That's, that's pretty brutal. Uh, brutal, brutal, brutal language. And so here is a de declaration of sin with an emphasis on innocent blood and the priests are complicit in it. Destruction is to follow. Understandably so. Now tapping into the tactile learning style, Jeremiah graphically illustrates their destruction by smashing a clay pot in front of the people. Verse 10 says, Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And in the next chapter, the priest strikes Jeremiah for his words and they reject his accusation and prophecy of destruction. 
Now this pattern of corrupt, destructive behaviour involving innocent blood followed by destruction can also be seen in the reference to the Zechariah passage. Uh, and if you flip across to Zechariah chapter 11, it's the, if you can't find Zechariah, just go to Matthew and go back two books because uh, it's the second last book in the Old Testament. Uh, and we're actually going to be looking at uh, doing a series on Zechariah later after Easter. Uh, but in Zechariah 11, there's a bit of a contrast between two shepherds. Uh, there's one good shepherd representing God and one shepherd representing the leaders of the people who are called up to pasture the flock. But instead of pasturing the flock, the leaders oppress them and deny them justice. Uh, it, it goes on to say, their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. But this is not just a picture of where justice has failed, it is also a failure of their conscience. The shepherds are in denial and they fail to hold themselves guilty for the slaughter of innocent blood. The lambs and sheep they were meant to be looking after. Not only that, but they also fail to see the value of the good shepherd among them. They undervalue the good shepherd by only paying him 30 pieces of silver. And as Zechariah somewhat sarcastically puts it, he, he uses the language here, he says, the handsome price at which they price me, the handsome price, a little bit of sarcasm, 30 pieces of silver was hardly anything. So in an act of judgment, um, it says they took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to that potter at the house of the Lord. They threw them down again. And in the end, it leads to destruction of the land and the nation is taken into exile under a foreign king. Now, again, the pattern is there. Sin involving innocent blood followed by destruction. So in one sense, Matthew was trying to allude that there's a bit of a pattern going on here with the, the leaders in the, in the time of Jesus. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, at a very basic level, uh, the chief priests have also betrayed innocent blood in the turning over Jesus, the innocent one. They undervalued the life of Jesus and underestimated his power, said that the only thing that he was worthy of was death. And instead of being rebuked by Judas's confession of guilt about betraying innocent blood, they're, they're living in denial of their own guilt. So when Judas threw down those 30 pieces of silver in the temple, it was a symbol of God throwing down his judgment on the temple and its leaders in the time of the New Testament. Now there is more we could say about the link to the potter's field, but for now we are reminded that Matthew appears to put these stories together to highlight the stark contrast between Jesus and the people. This element of discipleship that's going through Matthew's Gospel. All the disciples abandoned Jesus in some way, and in their hypocrisy the leaders rejected him. All are guilty, and the only one left who is innocent it's just Jesus standing there on his own in stark contrast. Just like the, the disciples were guilty of denying Jesus, and in one sense we are all guilty. And it all includes us. With all our blind spots, we too at, at times abandoned Jesus and walked away. And we, we ourselves are guilty of sin, and we ourselves ultimately have been worthy of, of destruction. If anything, that is the ultimate state of hopelessness. It doesn't get more uh, hopeless than that, being worthy only of destruction. But that is the great news of Jesus, that he died to give us a way back to God. And it highlights why it is so important that we don't underestimate who Jesus is. Jesus, the good shepherd, 
who was innocent of sin, but yet by dying in our place, he dealt with the destruction that we deserved and offers us a way back to God in our helplessness. After his crucifixion, Jesus conquers death and in his resurrection from the dead, as we all know, he will come again one day as God's appointed judge to destroy sin once and for all. So for all those of us who trust in Jesus, there is hope of forgiveness. We don't have to live in a state of hopelessness. Jesus dealt with our guilt at the cross so that we have the hope of forgiveness. So we need to decide whether we want to make the same mistake of the people in the Old and New Testament who rejected good leaders and suffered under bad ones. We have to decide whether we want to put our hope in the only leader worth following. As our guilt weighs heavily upon us, the Lord Jesus is the only one who can give us a way back to God. As Jesus said back in chapter 26 when speaking of his upcoming death at the last supper, he said these words, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it's similar to what he said to the disciples in Luke 24 when he, after he had risen from the dead. This is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And we here in Enfield are evidence of the outworking of these words of Jesus as repentance and forgiveness is preached to the nations as we've received this message of forgiveness. Well, that's pretty much what this passage is driving at. And let me just slow, let's pause to and make a few points of application here. And um, uh, I felt like it's important to touch on it because firstly, this passage does mention the reality of suicide. Um, uh, Atipol in the Old Testament, who has betrayed King David, is the other mention of suicide. Uh, and here it is Judas. Um, so uh, let me pause and say a few things about that topic. It's a sensitive topic. And to begin with, suicide is not necessarily an unforgivable sin. Uh, refusing to accept the forgiveness of Jesus uh, that Jesus offers is obviously unforgivable. Uh, but the Catholic Church separates sin into two categories, venial sin and mortal sin. And it puts suicide into the category of mortal sin that is unforgivable. Now, but sin is sin, and it separates us from God regardless of what it is. The only unforgivable sin is to refuse to accept forgiveness. But suicide is not necessarily a wise thing to do. As much as people are at a point where they feel they are stuck in a, a place of hopelessness. Uh, but choosing to do that is making a decision to take the place of God. Making a decision to end our life that is not ours to make. We also need to remember that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives that is bigger than we understand. We have to trust him that he has a purpose for our lives and will bring triumph out of the tragedy in the mystery of his will, no matter what it is we're wrestling with at this point in time. God has a bigger picture that is very hard for us to see in that moment of hopelessness. So having said that, we need to take great care of those around us who are struggling with these thoughts, and who knows, it might be one of us one day. Those feelings are very real and the reasons are very compelling. And so we need to take great care for one another as we help people through those 
these, these times of hopelessness. But even though suicide is not an unforgivable sin, I guess we must aspire to victory over our struggles rather than aspire to forgiveness afterwards, like it is for all things we struggle with. Aspire for victory rather than relent and then seek forgiveness afterwards. Secondly, for us who are Christians, let us remember these great words in Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. With Jesus, we have hope of forgiveness. So whatever you have or have not done, and whatever you are feeling now about things that have happened in the past, don't let yourself be weighed down by the guilt of decisions that you have made in the past. Sure, we have to live with the consequences of the decisions we've made, but we don't need to be consumed by the guilt because Jesus has dealt with that for us at the cross. Jesus died to give us a way back to God. Let us not be blinded by our guilt to what Jesus has done. We miss out on the hope of forgiveness. Let's also remember that God can change people's hearts. As we live in a world that seems so hopeless at times, a world without hope. And just this past week, seeing the news again, it's just hopeless, hopeless story one after the other. People's hearts seem so hardened to the message of forgiveness. Let's not be ashamed that the message that we bring as Christians is a message of hope. There's a message of hope. A message that Jesus has died to give us a way back to God. And finally, there may be some among us who have not received this message of forgiveness. The reality is, without Jesus, you have no hope of forgiveness without Jesus. As polite as I can uh, uh, say something like this, but as it stands, without Jesus, you are in a hopeless situation. You are in a hopeless situation. But you don't have to stay in a place of hopelessness forever. Jesus has died to give you a way back to God. Now, it doesn't matter what you have done or where you're at in your life right now, there is always hope. You don't have to live with your guilt forever if you turn back to Jesus. Maybe today is the day you will turn back to God. Take time to stop, turn around, and say, thank you that Jesus died to give me a way back to God. Maybe today is the day. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus died to give us a way back to God. And even though we are weighed down with our guilt, we know that you have not left us in a state of hopelessness. We thank you that even though Jesus was innocent and we are guilty, we thank you that in his death, Jesus took the destruction we deserved so that we can have a way back to God. Help us to lay our guilt at your feet and know that we are forgiven. May all who trust in Christ hold unswervingly to the hope that we possess, for we know that you who have promised forgiveness are faithful to your promise. And we thank you that we can hold on to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.